the greatest commandment. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. I appreciate the fact that God kept us simple at least fairly simple for all of us, that there's just one God and no other. You know, for the ancient Greeks and many other cultures, they had all kinds of gods. They had a God for everything. And trying to keep them all straight and trying to appease all of them was very difficult, very hard for people to do. Well, obviously, most of that was Greek mythology, but people believed that and, and thought that way. The Bible is very clear, though, for us, there's just one God and there is no other and our role is, is to live for that God and to serve Him. I think that truth is absolutely vital, that there's one God, and our response to that fact is vital as well. You know, ancient cultures are not the only ones that believed in many gods. For certainly our culture today has many gods with a little g. We sometimes call them idols, but there are many things that people worship. There are many things that people devote themselves to and give their attention to and their heart to. I listed some on your outline. It was easy to, to think of, of, of money. It was one of those things that people worship. I saw a sign the other day that, that I thought was kind of funny. It, it said, money won't buy you happiness, but it certainly makes your misery easier to take. <laughs> thought that was kind of cute. People worship money and, and the things that money will buy. Power can be another god with the little g. And in this highly political season with the presidential campaigns going on, we see that that's so much of what that's about. People striving for powers. People striving for those positions that, that have incredible power in them. People worship sex and pornography has become so prolific just everywhere. So, much, um, so many products, so many things, uh, sex is used to sell them. And we're just bombarded with those kinds of messages all the time. And, and, and people devote themselves to that kind of thinking. Food is another one where we allow food to meet needs that God was certainly, God certainly intended that he meet those needs. Just a couple of passages on your outline. First John 2, verses 15 and 16. John says, do not love the world. And by world there he means the system. Not talking necessarily about planet Earth, but he means the, the system in which we live. He says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. And Philippians 3.19 says, their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind 
is on earthly things. So I think it's all too easy to focus on the wrong areas, to give our allegiance to the wrong things. It's very important that we respond to the only God. Turn with me to Mark chapter 12, where um, Janie just read for us. To kind of set the scene, Jesus is having one of those typical question and answer times with the religious leaders um, who are upset with him perpetually, always upset with him, not liking the things that he had to say because it threatened their way of life. And so they're kind of asking a lot of questions. The questions are not asked with the right motives. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. It says, then he began to speak to them in parables. So Jesus is teaching the crowd in parables, but the Pharisees and Sadducees and others know that oftentimes he was talking about them and teaching the people not to be like them. And so they try and catch him in his words in something that he says. Look at verse 12. It says, then they looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. In verse 13, later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. So their motives aren't pure. They just want to trip him up. They just want to catch him in, in something that he says. And they ask that famous question about paying taxes to Caesar. Should they do that or not? And he gives an absolutely brilliant answer, and they're kind of flustered by that. Look at verse 18. They fell. So then verse 18, then the Sadducees who say there's no resurrection came to him with a question. And they asked about um, uh, marriage in the kingdom of God. And look at Jesus' reply in verse 24. Now these are the spiritual elite. These are the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the ones who knew all the law, who knew, supposedly knew the word of God. Look at Jesus' response to their question in verse 24. Jesus replied, are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures? Or the power of God? Ouch, ouch, ouch. They needed steel-toed boots. He says, you're wrong. You don't know the scriptures. That probably didn't go over very well with them. Verse 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. He asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? Actually, I think Jesus had to love the questions because it gave him absolutely great opportunities to teach. Not only to teach them when they weren't listening, but to teach the crowd that was listening. People who were seeking, people who did want to learn and want to know, because they weren't learning any of that from the so-called teachers of that day. So he asked them, which is the most important commandment? Verse 29, the most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And with all your strength. So Jesus says the most important commandment is there's one God. Love him in every way possible. There's one God. Respond to him in every way that you possibly can. So he kept it simple. He said there's one God. There's not a God of the sea and of the sky and of the earth and of the trees and of the lightning and of the snow and of the thunder and of love and of peace and of war and of hate. He said, no, there's one God. The greatest commandment, what you really need to know is there's one God. There's no other besides him. And just to share some other scriptures along that line, and it's a huge point to be made here, one of the things that you need to know is that the Bible is written. There are some 40 different authors that God worked through their personality and all to, to write the scriptures as all of the Bible was inspired. 
And 39 of the 40 were Jewish. Luke is the only one who wasn't Jew, a Jewish writer. So as they write, they're writing with a Jewish mindset. They're writing with a Hebrew mindset. They've been taught since birth that there's one God and no other. And, and they write that throughout the scriptures. Later on, Plato and, the, and other Greeks came in and introduced the thought of many gods, or two in one or three in one or six in one or whatever. But they introduced the thought of a lot of gods. The Hebrew mindset was one God and no other. The first commandment, have no other gods before me. They taught that from, the, from birth on. I just put a few examples on your outline. In Deuteronomy 4.35, says, The Lord is God, beside him there is no other. Verse 39, the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth below. There is no other. Isaiah 44.6, apart from me there is no God. Isaiah 45, 5, I am the Lord and there is no other. Apart from me, there's no God. Isaiah 45, 21, there's no God apart from me. A righteous God and a Savior, there is none but me. Verse 22, for I am God and there is no other. It all sounds kind of redundant, doesn't it? They're Hebrew, they're Jews. One God, that's all they, they thought. That was the only thought that would occur to them. Turn with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Those are some Old Testament examples. A couple of, of important, I think, New Testament examples as well. In 1 Corinthians 8, Paul had been asked a question by the Corinthian church about, what about eating food that had been sacrificed to idols? What if people say, you know, we're worshiping this hunk of rock, it's an idol, we think it's a god, and we sacrifice food to it. Is it okay for us in the church to eat that? And so Paul's dealing with that question. Now, I don't want to go into all that, but just look at his answer, basically, in verse 4. 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 4. He says, So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. So Paul says, idols aren't anything. They're hunks of rock and hunks of wood and whatever. They're nothing. There's one God, no other. Verse 5. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. Paul declares, you know, there's many gods with little g's. There's many idols. People worship all kinds of things and are devoted to all kinds of things. But for us, he says, there's one God. And he clarifies even further, saying the Father. One God, the Father. And, and that's all. Turn over to chapter 15. And just briefly want to look at verses 24 to, to 28. Actually, let's start with verse 22. There are those who believe sometimes that Jesus and God are somehow equal, that they're the same, that there's two or three in one, that type of thing. Scripture, I think, is clear. There's one God, the Father, that Jesus is his son. And though, you know, they work together, uh, we don't even understand all of that because we can't fully comprehend God. But we can't understand a father and a son. This is 1 Corinthians 15 is a resurrection chapter. Paul talks throughout this about the fact that Jesus rose from the dead and what that means, because he's alive. 
And he comes to this section of the chapter where he's talking about future events. He's talking about Jesus Christ coming back and how Jesus will hand over the kingdom to God the Father and what will, what will take place at that time. Look at verse 22. It says, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own turn. Christ, the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. He says, Jesus will come back first because he rose from the dead. Then believers will, will rise from the dead too when Jesus comes back. Then verse 24. He says, then the end will come. When he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Paul says Jesus will come back, the dead will be raised, will be made immortal. Then Jesus will conquer the earth. He'll take over. And when the time comes, he'll then hand over the, the, the kingdom to God, the Father. It says the last enemy to be destroyed is death. He says he'll put everything under his feet. Jesus will conquer everything. It says with one exception. It says when he puts everything under his feet, that doesn't mean God. Why? Because God's the Father. It says, in fact, Jesus, the Son, will be made subject to the Father, will be made subject to God. By definition, there can only be one that is almighty. So when the kingdom of God is established upon the earth, there will, there will be God the Father, there will be Jesus the Son, but they are not the same and they are not equal. The Son will be made subject to the Father because God is almighty, because God is the only one. I just, on, on your outline, I also included... Paul's thinking in the introduction to his letters. In 1 Corinthians 1.1, 1, 1, it says, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then I put the verses there in the, of the introductions to most of Paul's letters because he says that in the introduction. If he had wanted to clarify that there was another God or that God was somehow different, he had ample opportunity to do that. But in every one of those verses, it says God the Father. And he clarifies it in that way as well as Peter, John, and Jude doing the same thing. They clarify that God is the Father, not the Son, not anything else, but God is, in fact, the Father. There's just one God and no other, none beside him. He's the only one. And that's stated literally hundreds of times as you go throughout Scripture. So in a sense, it's very simple, folks. There's one God. We need to respond to him. We need to live for him. There aren't multitudes of gods that are real. There is one God. We are to give our lives to him. So how do we do that? Well, Jesus gave the response in Mark 12, 30, when he said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And he's quoting there from Deuteronomy 6, the famous text in verses 4 through 9 where that great command is stated. And he goes on from there and, and says, you know, this commandment that there's one God that we're to love him is to be impressed upon your heart. And then he says, impress it upon your children. Teach your children. 
Talk to them about it. When you're sitting at home, when, you're, when you lie down to go to bed, when you walk along the way, he says, teach your children all of these things. See, that's the response. We're to give our hearts, our devotion to the Lord. Our prayers are to be directed to him. Our worship is to go to him. We're to share our lives with him. Uh, we're, we're, we're to give of ourselves by sharing it with our children, by sharing that message with other people as well. It's to be in our heart. It's to be what we're about, our relationship with our God. And so our devotion is to go to him. I skipped over James 2.19. It says, you believe in your heart that there's one God good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. The demons know that. The difference between us and them is that we're to respond. We're to give our hearts to the Lord in devotion. Secondly, he says, love the Lord your God with all your mind. I think of studying as a response to study God's word. You know, I think it's too easy for us as believers in Christ to become somewhat lazy and, and not answer the questions that other people have who are non-believers. People who bring up scientific questions that they don't think the Bible agrees with. People who bring up evolution, and there is all kinds of evidence to answer those kinds of questions. And we simply need, we need to study to love God with all of our mind, to have answers to those questions, to always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that we have, and to do that with gentleness and respect. Ezra 7.10 says, For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. He not only studied, studied it, but he shared it as well. It was not to be a secret. Ezra loved to study, to use his mind to honor the Lord and then to share that with others. In 2 Timothy 2.15, this says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. To correctly handle it, we need to study it. We need to be involved in the word on a very regular basis. Thirdly, he says, love the Lord your God with all your soul. The word just means being. I think it just means all of us in, in every way. In our relationship with God, that's to be what our lives are about. That whatever we do, we do with God in mind. In Luke 9.24, it says, For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for me will save it. Certainly we are to die to Christ, to die, to our, to die for Christ, to die to our own desires and our own wants. And once we do that and we accept Christ in faith, I then would encourage you to live well for the Lord with your whole being. When it says soul or being, I just think of not compartmentalizing our lives at all. That we don't act like a Christian on Sunday from 9 to noon and then act a different way the rest of the time. And we kind of put our relationship with God in this little compartment and, and pull it out when it's convenient. And otherwise, forget about it. No, that's not loving God with your soul, with your being, with all that you have. See, I think when we go to work, when we go to school, and whatever we're doing, we do that in a relationship with God. Out of love for him. And then he says, love the Lord your God with all your strength. And I just think of service when I think of that. And in Luke 16, 13, it says, no servant can serve two masters. We could say two gods there. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. 
Again, I think he kept it fairly simple for us. There's just one God. He says, devote yourselves to him, to following him, to serving him, to obeying him, to loving him in every way that you can. And I think applications to that are only limited by our own creativity. There are many ways to express our love and our devotion to God. I thank him that there's only one God and that we can respond just to him. Father, I'm thankful that uh, you're one. I'm thankful that we know you, that you're the one that we need to respond to and to live for and to obey. You're the one that we need to express thanks and gratitude to. Father, may we do that well. And may we share with others the same message, that you're God, that there is no other, that the only way to you is through Jesus Christ for eternal life. Father, may we live with joy this week. May we spread that message. May we respond in ways that bring a smile to your face. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.